Episode 48, Have the Miracles Really Ceased? And Why Many Don't Really Want to Know? Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. I am determined not to begin this episode with the word well. I've noticed in listening to other episodes, I frequently say, well, this or that, and uh, probably a bad habit. Who knows? I am at least uh, conversational. You've got to give me that. It's good to be back. It's been several weeks since I last uh, recorded an episode, and I've got a lot on my mind, uh, so much more than I can keep up with lately in writing. It's been quite a fruitful year uh, so far with lots going on in my learning and such. And I'm uh, excited to get back at it today. I'm uh, actually starting with what began as just a short Facebook post this morning, but has turned into something much bigger. Uh, This will actually cover material that we have mentioned before, but probably puts it in a bit of a new angle, a bit of a new context and so forth. Uh, Generally, I've been uh, very busy. I've been in the middle of a career change. I had been doing paintless dent repair for quite some number of years, I think 16 or so. And um, it has proved in my state to be uh, not the very best career because um, I have, um, it's a borderline hail state. There's not enough hail here where you can work just Montana shops and uh, make enough of a living most years, unless you get lucky. So I decided, oops, I got to make a change. So I took the dive and actually um, got out of the business completely, sold my tools because it's a bit like a gambling addiction. Oh, we'll probably have a good hail year this next year and then I'll do really well. (laughs) And so it's like, no, figured out that that's not working. Uh, Not a good gamble. I'm not generally a gambler, by the way, Uh, but um, this behavior is kind of like gambling. I thought, we better just sell the tools so there's no option to go back. Sort of like burning the ships if you're an invading army uh, in years past. So anyway, I'm excited to be moving on to other things, still trying to keep my freedom choir, my uh, community choir. It's a mixed choir of teens and adults, trying to keep that going. And who knows what I'll be doing with music in the future. But um, between that and studying and just trying to make a living, that's what I'm doing. Not sure where I'm going living-wise. 
as far as career, we'll have to see what I can find. That is something I think I can tolerate. So um, been learning a lot about myself as a um, probably something of a neurodiverse person, if you know what that is. And uh, also been uh, having other epiphanies such as that I am both, uh, I have uh, strong traits of introversion and extroversion, which is a very interesting thing. That is, I draw energy from my inner life, from thinking, from reading, from pondering, from researching, uh, from close, you know, intimate discussion. But I also want to uh, present these ideas to others and to have lots of interaction and to get feedback from people. And uh, this explains a lot about me, uh, but it kind of makes me a bit unusual and uh, maybe is somewhat of a curse if uh, people don't t tend to want to talk about the things I want to share. And this actually is a, quite a recognizable uh, feature of my life. Like even this uh, podcast, I don't get much feedback at all from it. And yet I continue to do it because it's internally meaningful to me. And it's part of my own continued education to keep studying these things, to try the ideas well enough to put them down in writing and see if they seem to make sense on paper and uh, to talk them out and such. So this is me doing what I do. And uh, who knows, maybe if someday I had the means to get it in front of a lot of people, I could build something of an audience. But uh, so far, not too much. Uh, but that's okay. I do it mostly for the love of the game, even if that is um, disappointing from time to time. So I think I'll jump right into uh, today's episode. It's number 48, Have the Miracles Really Ceased? And Why Many Don't Really Want to Know? And uh, we've talked about these kind of things somewhat before, but uh, this seemed like a good uh, thing to put together into an episode. I'm not sure how long this lasts, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Uh, we will see. And you can probably hear the deep concern on my voice about knowing that number. Uh, as you know, I tend not to care too much. If it's too long, I'll cut it in half and make two episodes out of it. Uh, so I do note, by the way, with uh, a mild bit of interest, that uh, people tend to quit listening to episodes roughly around the 36-minute mark, uh, it, based on the stats that I've got from Blueberry, who hosts the audio for my uh, podcast. And that's interesting to me. Should I cater myself to that, or should I just say, well, look, this is what I do, and uh, hopefully there's enough people out there who are okay with that, or, you know, should I try to change my game and get more sophisticated and such? Well, we shall see. Right now, uh, I'm a bit of a small operation on a shoestring budget and uh, don't have a whole lot of time available for all this, at least in my current routine. By the way, speaking of routine, I have been working out an awful lot lately, working on my fitness, uh, working on what I eat and what I weigh especially, and I have lost 100 pounds as of this past week. Uh, it's been since 2016 or so. And so um, that's a mighty nice uh, thing to be able to report, although it comes with its caveats. That is, I am uh, still 60 pounds, 50-something 50 pounds, 55 pounds away from probably what I should weigh. So I've got a long, long way to go, 
but it has been awfully informative. I've learned a lot about myself, and um, this actually will come out to play in episodes probably coming up sometime soon-ish regarding the human will and how the things that we desire can be in conflict with one another. That is, uh, how can I desire to get fit and lose weight but really hate the routine it takes to get there, uh, to not fully accept it, not fully embrace it, and so forth, as if I'm sort of pouting on the inside, wishing it were not so, wishing there were some way out. Well, this will have lots of implications, I believe, as I continue to think through it, as it regards Christianity and how a lot of us may be going through the motions, but not really loving what God has ordained, what he has established, what he's set forth, what are the principles and the precepts and the rules and the facts of it all. I think there's a lot of dissension between our true will sometimes and what God really wants. And this is fantastic uh, topic in my view. I find it very intriguing the idea between what God wants, what pleases him, what his will is, his desire, and then our desires, uh, the desires that Satan has, as you can see in the scriptures, or that he had, if you think he's uh, no longer uh, in circulation, as some do. And so uh, I think this is a fascinating field of discovery, and I look forward to learning a bunch about it. I've already been studying about it, so that's why it's uh, hot on my mind. Uh, But this has come into play, especially as I've realized my own internal uh, desire conflicts. And one thing that's especially fascinating to me about this is that these things, or at least some of these, tend to operate at a very low level on my internal radar. Uh, Things that are easy for me to see is, oh, words that are flying through my head, you know, thoughts, things that come up in words, uh, I'm very uh, linguistic about my emotions. I can normally explain them very easily in words, very readily. But I've noticed in my workouts, I'm having a lot of uh, times when my moods just don't add up. And when I'm grouchy and I can't really put words on it, I can't find a source for it. And so it has seemed that things do indeed happen underneath that everyday level of words and plans and thoughts and decisions and analysis and all that kind of stuff that I'm constantly doing in my head. So uh, anyway, we will get into that later, not today, as McGonagall says. So let me jump into the episode number 48, Have the Miracles Really Ceased? And Why Many Don't Really Want to Know. And I think this time I will really do it. Uh, Just a note about the show notes on the website at RethinkingTheBible.com. The notes that are there are the notes from which I am speaking now from this moment forward. However, uh, don't be surprised if there should be thoughts interjected into today's episode that do not appear on that page in the website. And for the record, there's no way I'm going back through this word by word to transcribe at all. So uh, what's there is the closest thing you'll get to transcription, unless, of course, you should happen to find the transcription that I believe is on the Blueberry app which I don't use myself, uh, or on some other app that makes use of that same technology. From what I understand, there is some transcript being automatically generated from this, 
And perhaps someday I'll discover whether that actually works. So here we go. Episode 48, Have the Miracles Really Ceased? And Why Many Don't Really Want to Know. I have friends who believe that the miracles of the Bible times have ceased. And I have friends who believe they're still going on as before. I also have friends who believe that the miracles still happen, but they don't happen with the same degree of regularity that they did in Bible times. And I have friends who don't seem to want to look into the matter as if it were better to have it unsettled than settled. Some will consider this their laziness, and some will think it a matter of wisdom to leave the matter open to further information. As if this weren't enough disagreement on how to look at the matter, the waters are further muddied by the common construing of certain events as miracles, although they fall outside the normal definition of miracle. One common example is childbirth, which, amazing as it is, is not normally considered to be a special working of divine power outside the normal rules of the physical world. Indeed, Childbirth is one of the most common events of our species. Another example of non-miraculous things being labeled as miracles is when somebody gets over a particularly bad disease. Oftentimes, the natural will be overlooked, that the person's body does have an immune system, after all, and that interventions were being made by way of medicine, nutritional supplementation, and other therapeutic treatments and there's a palpable motivation to describe the healing as miraculous, even though we know, or should know, that it doesn't meet the standard definition of the term. So altogether, this is the cultural backdrop against which any discussion of miracles is to be had. And there's a great amount of inconsistency going on. For instance, even in cessationist camps, and cessationists are people who believe the miracles have ceased, uh, even in cessationist camps, who will flat out tell you that prophecy and healing and tongues and such have ceased, it's very common to hear someone pray before a sermon, quote, Father, we ask that you give Brother Thomas the words we need to hear this morning, end quote. Well, that's pretty much how biblical prophecy worked, that God himself somehow managed to have a human prophet say the words that God himself wanted said in a particular time and place. But when we pray for such today, many would be surprised to learn that they're praying for prophecy to happen, since they generally believe that the gift of prophecy has passed. And this kind of wishy-washy use of language is problematic. It's everywhere. This is me just butting into my script here. Um, this kind of uh, sloppiness in how we think and how we talk about things, it's quite a problem, and it is everywhere. Another example of inconsistency that bears mentioning also involves the definition of Bible terms. It's that of speaking in tongues, for which many today mean something different from what it seems to have meant in that first century period in the Mediterranean Sea region where the Bible events were taking place. In that time period, speaking in tongues seems to have been an exercise of a divinely granted superhuman power to speak fluently in a real-world language one has not yet learned himself. Today, however, it is often reported to be speaking in such fashion as is not recognizable 
as any real-world language at all, such that if it were to be understood by anybody, it would have to be by way of further miraculous divine empowerment. This definitionally messy practice, then, muddies the waters a great deal, as many will tell you they believe in speaking in tongues, who would think this follow-up question nonsensical. And here's the question. Oh, what language was he speaking in? They've simply redefined the terms, it seems, just as I've already discussed about how the definition of miracle itself has altered or been altered by some. It's messy business. So why don't we clean this up? Why don't we appoint some commission to look into the matter? Why don't we set out to study it anew and settle some of these questions once and for all? Well, slow down there, Jack. What makes you think that people want to have matters of religion cleared up? What makes you think that they want the culture of mystery and wonder settled any more than it is? After all, this is a society that seems to value highly certain ideals such as the magic and wonder of Christmas. And this society would get a little upset if someone were to go about telling the actual truth about certain Christmas traditions too loudly, for they have a great deal invested in keeping the lore as it currently is, more or less. Sure, they might be open for an occasional whispered conversation about it all, out of the earshot of their children, but you're not going to find much in the way of any consensus of concern over the state of our religious traditions when it comes to how we celebrate Christmas not even on cold matters of fact, such as whether 25 December is the actual day of Jesus' birth. And why is that? In a religion dedicated to a man who called himself the way, the truth, and the life, why wouldn't there be much concern over verifying which date is his actual birthday? I mean, if and this is me off the script here, if we're going to celebrate a birthday and we're going to say it should be on some certain day, well, shouldn't we have some natural sense of reasonable and responsible concern about getting the day right? Or if we don't think we've got it right, shouldn't we be saying pretty much all the time, now look, we're not sure this is the right day, okay? (laughs) But uh, do we really do that? No, I don't think we do. Uh, It's pretty rare for somebody to mention that we're not sure we've got uh, December 25 right. And of course, some people are absolutely sure it's right and adamant about it, and they will fight you if you say otherwise. So anyway, back to my script. And why wouldn't we really want to know whether Jesus is actually giving Brother Thomas the words he's speaking in the sermon this morning? And whether Jesus is the actual person behind Granny Bess getting over her pneumonia, Why would we rather assume such things than to actually know them? What is it about us that prefers to live this way? Do you see the general attitude of fuzzy math that I'm getting at here? Do you see this disposition of not wanting matters matters settled, but of just letting the lore and tradition ride as is? Well, I think that such a way of looking at things is novel to the spirit of that special generation that happened in the first century. I think that when Jesus and his apostles after him were teaching on the earth, 
they were investing a lot of energy and time into clearing things up and setting the record straight. And since then, many have worked hard actually to reverse the clarity, to blur the lines again, to change the religion back from one in which many mysteries were being revealed and explained into one that is filled with mystery, a religion that is more often mystical as opposed to, and here's a list of words I got from merriamwebster.com under the uh, antonyms of the word mystical. So uh, a religion that's more mystical as opposed to intelligible, understandable, obvious, unmistakable, fathomable, apparent, clear, plain, unequivocal, perspicuous. I got to admit, that's not in my regular vocabulary. I'm intrigued. I should go learn that one really well. Uh, Transparent, manifest, straightforward, unambiguous, palpable, evident, patent, open and shut. I think that modern Christianity has gotten so far down the road of mysticism that many of us would be shocked if we were to conduct a survey of statements from the New Testament writers regarding just how much they were in the business of revealing mysteries and setting forth things plainly. Here are a few one-liner excerpts from the New Testament writings that I put forth as examples of what I'm talking about. You'll need to study the context of these to be diligent, but for now, just ask yourself whether these sound like writings of people who consider their own religion to be one that is heavy on the mysterious. So I've got 14 items here. They're all numbered, and uh, I'm just going to read them down the list. Number one, Romans 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Number two, Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings uh, has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And then it goes on. And so, and by the way, when it says according to the revelation of mystery, well, the revelation, that is the revealing of. So these are things being revealed, not things that they were talking about because they were famously yet unrevealed. That's not what this is about. Going on, number three, Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. I will explain the mystery to you Not every one of us will die, but we will all be changed. So here's an explaining of a mystery, not just the repeating of a mystery as is. It wasn't just passing it along like you figured out. No, he was saying what the thing he was talking about means. Now, number four, Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So once again, he's explaining the whole plan here. Number five, Ephesians 3.3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Number six, Ephesians 3.4, 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. If it was still a mystery, he wouldn't have insight into it, would he? Okay, so this had been revealed to him, and he was revealing it to them. Uh, number seven, Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, number eight, Ephesians 3, 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Yep, that's right, folks. Uh, so many of the things that the apostles and prophets are, are explaining in the gospel is stuff that was hidden for a very, very long time. God hinted about it a bunch through the prophets and the Old Testament writings, uh, but now it was all coming together and the word was out. They were explaining this stuff. And uh, most of it would be uh, revealed in their own generation and with very little left even in these writings yet to be revealed. Uh, okay, number nine, Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Well, yeah, and we're not going to get into the particular mystery he's talking about, but once again, he's citing a mystery and telling them, okay, here's what this is about. It's about Jesus and the church. Number 10, Colossians 1.26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This was not now soon to be revealed. No, it was revealed past tense. In his the present moment he wrote this, it had already been revealed. On number 11, Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known... How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's telling them what the mystery is and about how great it is. And God chose to make it known among the Gentiles, not even among just the Jews. You know, the religious people had been paying attention for their generations. Uh, no, this is to everybody. Number 12. Uh, there are two more after this. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Funny, if this is a mystical religion, why would one of its leaders be writing about, quote, a full assurance of understanding? Do you really want a full assurance of understanding in a mystical religion? I don't think so. Number 13, Colossians 4, verse 3. Be sure to pray that God will make a way for us to spread his message and the mystery about Christ, even if I am in jail for doing this. So, you know, they're spreading this message. This is their goal. They're, they're, it, this is not even like hidden knowledge, secret knowledge, just for the initiates. This is something they're publishing out to the world. And then the last one, uh, number 14, Revelation uh, 1, verse 20. Oh, and this one, I, I liked this one because it's different from the others. Here it is in the Revelation of all books, the, bo the, the book that remains so impenetrably mysterious for so many. 
uh, because of the way that they study it, or rather don't study it. Uh, here's what he says, Revelation 120. Uh, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven uh, golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, I love this because, uh, while we're not going to go into the Revelation today, uh, here's a book that makes use of a lot, a lot, a lot of imagery, and he's just going to stop right here in the first chapter and say, okay, let me pin down this image for you. Here's exactly what that means. Well, there are a lot of people who do not want this published. <laughs> they don't want the writer telling people what it means. No, 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 no. We would rather have that job ourselves. We would rather tell them what we think it means, right? Okay, so going on now. Now, if you've read the 14 excerpts above, you've just done a lot more work than most will ever do to take a fair stab at surveying that New Testament culture to see how they talked about various things. I'm going to say more about this. Most Christians will simply not take the time to study a thing out. They might think, oh, I wonder what the first century Christians believed about X, Y, or Z. They might think that. It might cross their mind. And indeed, it should, if they're thinking at all about the stuff they hear at church or they happen to read in the Bible. But who among them is ever going to say, well, let's stop and find out. <laughs> let's go study it ourselves. Let's look it up, right? Who's going to do that? That's pretty rare. And of course, of all the people who might do that, how many are going to discover themselves an hour later where they're knee-deep in this with no end in sight. Oh, I didn't know there were 67 verses. In fact, I think that's what I ran through this morning studying something or other. Uh, 67, no, that was yesterday. 67 different verses about the will of God and man and Satan, uh, things I was looking into, wills and desires and, and all that. Okay, well, I didn't know how long that study was going to be, and when I jumped into it, you know, here I am three or four hours later, still trying to wrap it up. Now that takes its toll. And a lot of people learn, I don't really want to do that again. Uh, but I think it's like totally worth it. And I wish I could have a career doing it. Uh, but anyway, uh, so here you've, you've gone through these 14 verses and you've got a sampling of stuff they said about mystery. And so uh, based on what you've just studied here, which sounds like the fairer statement? Here are two statements. You tell me which sounds truer about that culture that wrote these documents that we just read these excer excerpts from. Uh, A, the New Testament culture was deeply enshrouded in mystery. Or B, the New Testament culture seems to have been considerably about the business of explaining at least some mysteries. So which do you sounds like the more, uh, the mo better answer, uh, A or B? To me, the obviously better answer is B. Well, why? Well, we've got these 14 passages. And how did I find these 14 passages? Oh, I looked up the word mystery in the New Testament. So how many of the passages I read are talking about things that continue to be a mystery in the very day in which they were talking about them? Well, none. 
So every time the word mystery came up, it was something that was already revealed. Uh, except, of course, uh, like one obvious thing is, well, what day was Jesus coming back? That had not been revealed. All right. Uh, who were the sons of God versus the sons of Satan? That had not yet been revealed. Yeah. Okay. Duh. It doesn't take a mega scholar to figure that one out. Okay. So, but all these other things where the word mystery comes up, they were things that had already been revealed. So again, to me, the obvious answer uh, is answer B. That is, the New, the New Testament culture seems to have been considerably about the business of explaining at least some mysteries. The first century apostles and prophets of Jesus were busy explaining mysteries that had long puzzled the world, things that even angels had longed to look into. And here's that verse to which I'm referring. Uh, this is in 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Now, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So this is Peter saying this in the first century, uh, that this was the case uh, at that time that angels had been long, longing to look into all of this. So I go on. Great labors were undertaken and much blood was spilled in order to explain these mysteries to the world in that century, in that first century. That's, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. And I don't think that I'm exaggerating when I complain that there is a palpable pushback today. Hey, palpable, that was on our our word uh, list of antonyms there for the word uh, uh, mystical. So yay, I get a vocabulary point for the day. Anyway, I don't think I'm exaggerated when I complain that there's a palpable pushback today in so many of the churches not wanting things to be quite so clear. For whatever the reasons might be, there's a lot of don't ask that going on. And I'm going to submit that don't ask that is not an intellectually healthy paradigm for any church to have. The late Michael Heiser, and I'll stop right here and say something about Mike. Uh, he's not a friend of mine, uh, but I listened to his podcast for some 400-ish episodes uh, and read a lot of his work, uh, several of his books and such. And he was very, very helpful to me in the material that he uh, covered. I learned a lot from it. Uh, it would be hard to under or to overstate how much I learned uh, from him. I do not agree with every conclusion he drew. Uh, and if I did, I would probably be not giving it adequate thought because who among us is right about everything? I mean, really? Uh, so anyway, uh, so I'm very thankful for him. He just uh, died very recently of, I believe it was pancreatic cancer. And so a lot of people are very sad about that right now. But uh, Michael Heidegger was famous for saying that he saw no need to protect people from their Bibles. And that's sort of a funny statement. It's meant to be shocking. And, and it is. We hear that like, what? <laughs> protect, protect them from their Bibles. But he would talk about how when it comes to Bible passages, um, if it's weird, it's important. That's what he would say. And, uh, but he's talking about how a lot of people, if it's weird, ooh, 
well, don't talk about that. Don't don't read that at church. You know, he talked about how the the preacher reading some passage of scripture would just say, well, I'm going to skip this next part because he didn't know how to explain it. He didn't know what it meant. So he would just skip it like it doesn't exist rather than go learn. He, he So he would protect people from parts of the Bible that he thought were too weird or too out there or too apt to, you know, quote, make people struggle or this kind of stuff. Uh, so that's awfully weird behavior. But Heiser about the Bible said, if it's weird, it's important. That is, if it raises questions, if it's surprising, if it's confusing, if it seems to contradict something we think we already know or understand, if it seems to be new information to us, if it uses words other than what we would use to explain the things in question, then it's worth looking into. But those are scary words for many because looking into things generally means discovering things. And discovering things generally means shedding new light on the status quo of what we already think we know and of what we believe and teach and do. And the next thing you know, we're talking about making changes in the church. And change in the church, ooh boy. For many, that's about as troubling a notion as they come. Many simply do not want a religion of finding out and knowing and studying and researching and making sound judgments on matters of fact and doctrine and such. No, that's just not the kind of religion they have in mind as ideal, and they want something else, probably something less intellectually challenging and rigorous. And I do believe that if the first century apostles and prophets themselves were to visit our modern churches, preaching boldly about the very things they were so busy revealing in the first century, that they would be asked in many of today's churches to sit down or even to leave. It seems to me that modern-day Christianity has taken on quite a lot of mysticism, where a vague but strong belief in fuzzy concepts that cannot be clearly defined has become the standard and where asking questions about the particulars has become anathema to the tenuous peace, I'm doing air quotes around peace, that the churches try to maintain. But it's a house of cards, isn't it? Trying to keep the various mysteries stacked up just so, and unmolested by either questions or new information, or any insistence that things ought to be looked into, Is this not a fair description of what's going on in thousands upon thousands of congregations this very day? As for me, I'm just not going to be satisfied with the mystery pageant where I've got a Bible that reveals a great deal of what so many churches try to keep mystical today. I've studied enough math and science not to be easily mystified by things in nature, but to expect that there's a real sensible explanation to be found somewhere. I've studied enough music to know that high achievement in artistry is not the result of some mystical process, but of the effective study of certain skills that almost anybody can attain with practice. I've had enough experience in my younger years doing table and stage magic, magic in quotes. It's just a trick, folks. (laughs) There's no witchcraft involved in anything I've ever done. Uh, Anyway, I've spent enough time doing that that I'm not mystified by even a great magician 
uh, even if I'm intrigued by the cleverness of the illusions he's managed to perform excellently. And I've invested enough hours in studying how Jesus and his prophets had revealed and explained mysteries that ran from the beginning, and in some cases even before the beginning, I'm talking about Genesis 1 beginning, that I'm hardly impressed with lightweight preachers who have no idea what a long and rich discussion there is in the record of the scriptures about such matters, and who tackle every passage of scripture that intrigues them personally as if it were a new mystery never before discovered or studied by any other human. It sounds almost like a commercial, doesn't it? Newly discovered, you know. A new study says, you know, like in the news, oh, new study must be something that's true. Uh, or others, new study must be false like everything else, right? So, you know, you can be wrong on either side of that bias. Okay. So going on, I think that's what's going on today. That sort of ignorant and clueless outlook on the scriptures and the questions they raise. And I think that the answer that most of the churches adopt for this situation goes something like this. So here's a, I don't know, a couple of sentences in a quote that I wrote, and I just made this up. I didn't get this from any church's website. Sit down, hush the questions, and just embrace the mystery. While we go on with the business of whatever we do here at First Mystical, learn to still your soul and to be at peace. Don't let your heart be troubled with such things, for it's beyond your reach and not for you to know. Farther along, we'll know all about it. But for now, just keep yourself busy with the authorized church activities, and God will be happy with you. And learn to embrace the mystery. It makes sense if you don't think about it. What if it had been God's plan to bring the miracles to an end at some point? Well, I can certainly see how some wouldn't want it to end. Just like Santa Claus, uh, there are rumors that some kids uh, at some point in their lives come to believe that Santa Claus is not real. <laughs> and so um, assuming that were to happen hypothetically in some kid's case. Uh, can you see some kids not wanting that to become the truth that they recognize is true? My dad and his older brother, Bill, uh, they were a year apart. And so they came to a conviction. I, I won't tell you on what evidence, but they came to a conviction at some point in their probably elementary school years, that Santa Claus was not real. And they decided it was to their best advantage not to mention this to their parents. Now, that probably doesn't have anything to do with what happened thereafter, but they did report that uh, things seemed to remain unchanged with Santa uh, occurrences after the point at which they changed their opinion on the matter. So let the reader understand. Uh, so I could definitely see how some would not want it to come to an end uh, when it comes to the miracles. Well, why am I saying this? Uh, well, a boatload of church activities based around uh, the miracles or the promise of miracles or the expectation of miracles, uh, even helping people manage their 
wrestling with, is God really working? Is he going to help grandma? Is uh, he going to give me the job I need? Or, you know, all this kind of stuff. There is so much invested in all of that, that there would be great turmoil if some church were to suddenly start believing that, no, this is not happening anymore. We shouldn't be expecting this. Um, that would be such a huge uh, overturning of the apple cart that you could easily see why some would want to keep it going. Uh, so I say, what if it had been God's plan to bring them to an end at some point? Well, I can certainly see how some wouldn't want it to end. Uh, but we do have at least one slam dunk prophecy that they were going to come to an end at some point. So here it is. I'm going to read you the entirety of Romans 13, and it includes the famous love passage, uh, which is fantastic. Um, and actually, that is relevant to the whole thing about the timing of the miracles and such. And so let me just read it in, in its entirety. Uh, and this is on the webpage for this episode at rethinkingthebible.com. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Hey, let's put some commentary in here as we go. Okay. So uh, speaking in tongues of men, well, okay, right. Uh, we knew about that. We knew that's what that speaking in tongues was. But did you know that apparently it was possible or at least hypothetically possible that they could also speak in the tongues of angels in whatever language or languages that angels might speak? Well, I don't think the Bible says too much about this, so it's intriguing to have this little bit of a hint. The door is open just a tad toward this bit of data here that, oh, angels had languages too. How interesting. Okay. So if I speak in the tongue of men and even of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, what are you saying, Paul? Because, uh, gee golly, you know, that sounds like a great thing to be able to do. But he's saying, well, it's not the ultimate thing, is it? There's something more important than having this miraculous power, and it is the love. Okay, so this theme obviously runs through the whole chapter. Uh, verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers, notice he doesn't just say, if I have prophetic words, but powers. And I think this maybe is a, um, a reference to not only the words a prophet would say, but to all the powers that went with it, including things like the powers of an apostle by which they could prove that they were actually apostles of Jesus and such. It may include all that. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's arguable. Maybe I'm just really stupid. But I did want to bring your attention to this phrase here, prophetic powers, so that you could consider this. And so he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Okay, wait a minute. Here's the same thing theme again, that apparently the prophetic powers and the understanding and the knowledge and the faith that could move mountains and that is an intriguing thing. And I don't think that they were ever just, hey, let's go have some faith today and find some mountain to move. Oh, no, 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 no. This was not some 
just a show of faith, this was like eschatological, eschatological language about um, the, the ultimate shift in power that was supposed to happen when Jesus would return. This is moving mountains. These were you know, an image, a biblical imagery about seats of power, about the the strongholds of of lesser Elohim who had control over, had jurisdiction over parts of the world and such, and that this is going to come to an end. And so this is much bigger than just, did you hear about Joe? He had so much faith he could actually move a mountain. Oh, really? How fantastic. <laughs> like, no, no, no. This is much more than that. But he's saying... Even this, these kind of powers, not only to be able to speak the very words of God, but all the powers that seemed to so often go with that, though not every prophet in the Bible is shown to have such powers, but we are not told whether they necessarily did or necessarily did not in any case. Okay, so even those powers, the point of it was love. And so he says, if I can do all those things, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. It means nothing. Hmm. Okay, well, there's going to be a point in this going on. Verse 3, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Okay, well, is this about miraculous gifts to give up all you have and deliver your body to be burned? Maybe it is. If so, I don't understand that. It would be fascinating to study that out further. Perhaps it is. I'm not sure what I would find. Uh, Verse four, love is patient and kind. It does not envy, does not boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Uh, It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Okay, Paul, why are you putting a little sermon in here about love? Well, this verse 8, love never ends. Okay, well, that's a point. Uh, Duh, I mean, the way it's presented, obviously this is sort of the finale to his point about love, but then he goes on. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Oh, okay. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, and he's talking about like prophetic, miraculous knowledge. How could you possibly know that kind of knowledge? Uh, It will pass away. Oh, I see. But love doesn't. That's right. Love never ends, but these things will pass away. Okay. And then Paul goes on. For we know in part, and this is in, you know, in Paul's present tense, uh, and some passages, some translations would say, for now we know in part, or we are knowing in part and we are prophesying in part. But when the perfection comes, the partial will pass away. In other words, when we get to the end of this, when we get to the the point of the story, then all the devices that led us up to that point, well, they become unnecessary. And he goes on with the same point, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Oh, no longer necessary. I see. Not crucial. I get it. 
And he goes on, for now, that's, this is Paul's now when he wrote in the first century, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now let me ask you, which is better, to see in a mirror and a, and a poor one at that, or to see something face to face? Which do you think is better? So he goes on, now I know in part, but then uh, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Again, it goes back to the mirror thing. Would you rather see face to face where you can move side to side and poke at what you're seeing? Or would you rather have to see it in a, in a dim mirror? And then verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Uh, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And there is, in the commentaries, there is some um, some assertion that when he says, so now these three remain, that he's saying, well, what now does he mean? It, I think he means the time at which all this is pointing, that we're like a child now, we're seeing dimly like in a mirror now, he would write to his audience in that day. But then... Uh, here's what things are going to be like then, and we'll be fully known. We'll we'll know fully then, uh, and what will remain of oh, faith, hope, and love. And again, the point of all this was that love was the point of all of this in the first place. Uh, having prophecy and the powers and tongues and all that makes no sense if you don't have love, because love is the goal of all this. Does that make sense? I sure hope so. Well, okay, here's the passage that says that these things are going to come to an end. We can't very well pretend our way around that, but we can certainly say, ah, true, they're going to come to an end. It just hasn't happened yet. Okay, well, a bajillion people say that. And a bunch of people say, no, it has come to an end. And a bunch of people say, well, some of it's come to an end. (laughs) And Others are like, well, some of it's come to an end sometimes, but not other times. And there's just all manner of confusion. So I go on. This passage does not directly describe every kind of miracle that was going on in the New Testament period in the first century, but it sure does describe a lot of it. And people will debate all day long about the particulars, just as they'll debate pretty much everything. And I've certainly brought some of this up before, such as in episode 21, which was titled, What All Has Changed in the Experience of Believers from the First Century Until Now. If you haven't figured it out, I am a cessationist. I believe that all the miracles have ceased and that it simply wasn't God's plan that they should continue until now. And I'm either going to be right about that or wrong about that, or possibly right or wrong about parts of that. But it does raise a very interesting question about our motivations and desires and dispositions. And I covered that pretty thoroughly in episode 35, which was entitled, Would You Approve of How Jesus Would Run His Kingdom? And the point of that is, okay, suppose that Jesus is running everything today, just like he wants. Well, would that be okay with you? What if you didn't like this or that about how he was choosing to run the world or to run his kingdom or whatever, all part of whatever is supposed to be uh, being run by him? Would you be okay with that? 
would that meet with your approval, with your will, with your desires, or would you be, would you have your arms folded? Would you be pouting about some of that? I've been thinking a lot lately, and you can read a lot of material about this in my recent blog posts at jackpelham.com if you like. But I've been thinking a lot lately about the human will, about what we are like deep down, about what we are like, uh, what we like and what we love and dislike and hate, about what we are willing uh, to merely do versus what we're actually willing to fall in love with. And I'll certainly be addressing this in future episodes here. But about this question of the miracles, I think that there are a lot of Christians who simply wouldn't be interested in Jesus's religion if it didn't include the mystery and the mysticism and the miracles or any chance of miracles. I think they love it as much as they love the idea of Santa Claus. Uh, even if they don't participate in Santa Claus themselves, uh, and that is that they've got themselves so far out on the limb that they're simply not going to put up with a Christianity that has no miracles. If that's the way Jesus wanted to run it. So we have here the prophetic word of Paul that these miracles were going to cease. Now, does this mean all of them? Oh, that could be argued. I think it does, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Okay, fine. But what if somebody didn't want them to be over and they were? Would they be okay with that? Would they admit it freely? Well, looks like they're over. Too bad. Or would they try to fudge on it? And say, well, I don't know. I think that's a miracle. Granny Bess got better. And you know how unlikely that was. So that must be a miracle, right? Would they be sort of fudging things in that direction? So here's a question for you. Whether you think I'm right about the miracles or not, and if you think I'm wrong and you press me on it, it's not going to be long until I ask you where I can see one of these miracles, or some of them actually, more than one would be nice, uh, but at least one would be a nice start. Uh, and if you're like everyone else who assures me they exist, you're not going to be able to give me the name and address of some church where I can regularly see them in action. Most like to blame this on a supposed lack of faith here in the United States, and many will point me to Africa, where they assure me that I should surely see it if I were to visit. But this raises an amazingly good question about why it would seem impossible for American Christians to have a viable faith that would make miracles possible. And I'm going to submit, of course, that it's not legitimate faith if you believe that God is going to do something he has not promised to do. And I discussed this in part, at least, or so say the show notes, under the heading When Faith Was Rational in episode 19, uh, which is called Hebrews 11, Faith and what, the world, what in the World is Going On in America, Part B. So uh, that's the end of my show notes here. Uh, but I knew I would be summing this up and didn't want to take the time to write out a summation. Uh, how honest are we and how rational and how responsible? Are we willing to say, oh, Christianity is like this and that and the other thing when we don't really know, when we can't really demonstrate it from Scripture, or when we can only give some shoddy demonstration of it and wouldn't want you to look too closely into the rest? Are we um, sweeping things under the rug 
Are we hiding things in the closet? Or do we really have like a full disclosure type of mentality about what we believe and why and what's the evidence for it and how good that evidence is? Do we really want people asking the questions and doing the research? Or do we have this sort of, uh, no, no, don't, don't ask that. <laughs> like the guy says about uh, this word he discovered uh, that means you've already put enough coffee in my coffee cup. <laughs> like this nervous thing. <clears throat> well, are we like that when it comes to looking into the miracles? Uh, yeah, a lot of us are. And it's not just the miracles, it's eschatology, you know, end times business. A lot of people are fascinated with that and don't want you looking into it. They don't mind letting their experts tell you what it means, but they don't want you looking into it. Um, you know, there's some of that about um, soteriology, which is the study of salvation, what it means to be saved, what it takes to be saved. There's some of that going on. We'll tell you what it means, but we don't want you looking into that yourself. There's a lot of that about ecclesiology, which is the study of, you know, the church or more, more accurately, the ecclesia, which is the Greek word that Jesus used, which means something roughly like the called out ones or possibly more conventionally the assembly or the congregation or something like that. Um, so there's all manner of things that it's easy to find a church that doesn't want you looking into it for yourself, but they just, they're happy to tell you what to believe about it. Okay. And so they, they would not be happy in a world where there's no Santa Claus. And why all might that be? Well, it could just be, look, we never really thought about it. And it makes us uncomfortable to think about it being different from what we believe or it could be they've got some ulterior motive for this or that fact being twisted the way they've got it. Who knows? And of course, I could be wrong about any of this too. Uh, maybe there's some things in the scriptures I've yet to discover or yet to discover what they mean, and they would undermine other things that I believe. Well, these are the pitfalls that we all face. These are the dangers we all face. And we could be wrong about a bunch of stuff. And I, I am I'm very good at it, actually. I've been wrong about a great many things uh, many times in my life. And I'm sure I'm still wrong about some things. And I'd like to know which ones they are. And so this is one reason I don't hesitate very much to put things out here. I mean, it's not like I just think up a new, hey, what if? And then, well, I'll publish that today. I may publish it in what-if form, but I'm not going to publish it like, oh, look what I know, because I don't. Uh, certain ideas take a long time to vet them, and you're looking for who can cause me trouble here, who can show me something that doesn't jibe with what I think I know. That's how you test an idea, how you vet it long-term. And uh, very few people are willing to do that. I think that's a shame. I think we should be more diligent as a way of life and responsible and rational about what we believe. And I think that a lot of the churches simply are not. Could this have anything to do with the fact that where there was one ecclesia in the first century, 
There are now so many thousands of different brands of ecclesia that um, scholars can't even keep up with what are all the names and beliefs of the groups. Could that have anything to do with it? That we're so compartmentalized and don't look into that and don't ask this and don't ask that and don't say that and, and don't raise that question because that will cause people to, you know, quote, struggle in their faith and quote, stuff like that. No, I don't think so. I think that the apostles and the prophets and Jesus himself were busy revealing a bunch of stuff. And I think it has a lot of import. I think if you were a, a scripture literate Jew, when Jesus showed up, and if you cared about these things, I think you were going home every day saying, holy cow, can you believe what the guy said today? He mentioned this scripture and that scripture, and he mentioned them in ways I never thought of before. And he revealed some meaning that I had never understood. And wow, do they fit together? And oh boy, I got to go back tomorrow and hear some more of this guy. That's what I think he's doing. But uh, that is, there are not many people who are going to like that. People that love God, that love the scriptures, that love the truth, that want to understand the things that God put in the record to be understood. Oh, they're going to eat that up. But other people, not so much. That's not the kind of religion they want. No, 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 don't, don't, don't go there. Why even bring that up, bro? <laughs> right? This kind of thing. You get all kinds of pushback. Now, let me say this. You can be a rebel. You can ask the questions. You can know the dude up front is having a hard time answering. You can know he's sandbagging. You can know he's blowing smoke. Uh, you can taunt him on purpose uh, and still be a jerk yourself. You can still be ignorant yourself. You can be right about one thing and wrong about two things. Right? So just because you're onto something with this or that investigation, it doesn't mean that you've got a mature heart before God and that you've got a great attitude. Maybe you do. And, and yay, I hope you do. But it doesn't mean that you necessarily do. And so we always need to watch our hearts and pay attention to where we are and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, anyway, that's what I wanted to cover today. I hope you find this useful. I hope it's intriguing. I hope it's challenging. I hope it opens up new doors of investigation for you. Maybe it convicts you about something that you already kind of knew. Yeah, I, yeah, I've been sloppy on this or lazy on that. Or yeah, I knew I was kind of fudging on this one and I really should go back and, and correct myself. Maybe you need to go back and have talks with people and say, you know, you brought this up earlier and I sort of hedged with you know, fudging on the thing. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that because I didn't really know or I knew I was wrong and I didn't want to admit it. And I'm sorry. And just go set the record straight, clear the air, uh, you know, let a righteous man rebuke you. And that's a good thing, right? So anyway, we have so much to learn and we're such ignoramuses. Uh, with the passing of Michael Heiser, uh, it's, it's a good time to stop and think if you're a scholarly sort, if you're inclined that way. And I, I think we all need to be more scholars than we are. Uh, Psalm 111, verse 2 says something like this, uh, Great are the works of the Lord, 
studied by all who delight in them. And we've talked about that before. I have no idea what episode or episodes we've done it in, but it has certainly come up here because that one's scary. What it seems to say, if the absolute means what the absolute seems to mean to us, that there is no person who delights in the works of God who does not study them. Well, if that's true, then what could you tell about a person's heart based on whether or not they study the works of God? Well, you could infer that the one who you could deduce that the one who does not study does not delight in the works of God. And then you could ask yourself all kinds of troubling questions about, well, what does that mean if someone does not delight in the things God does? And it would be hard in that investigation of logic to come up with some sort of answer that makes that person seem like he's doing pretty good in his spiritual life if he doesn't care about God's works, right? And so it's troubling ground. I think we should care. We should learn how to care. Maybe we've had lousy teachers who, like in math class, will suck the life from your bones, like one of the Dementors from Harry Potter, and will make you dread your very breath and roll your eyes in disgust when the name of math is mentioned. Maybe you've got Bible teachers like that. There are music teachers who suck the life out of their students and train them that music is all about just playing the quarter notes right and keeping the tempo right and then trying to get the right fingering on the horn when music is actually about so much more than just those couple of little basic elements. There's what about the tone and the expression and the phrasing and the and the dynamics and the um the vibrato and the shape of the line and, you know, all these kinds of things. There's so much more packed into the art than just that. And for so many of us with Bible study, it's, well, yeah, we're supposed to recite this psalm now altogether. Or, yeah, we were supposed to read that before class next week. But they don't really understand it much. They don't look into it much. They're not curious about it much. And, oh, boy, is there a lot of heart missing from the religion that you can get down at the average church. And it's the same way down at First Mystical, uh, where they want things to be mysterious and mystical and ethereal and shrouded and chimerical and all this. And they don't want it to be just straightforward. Look, here's the facts. Well, I don't think everything in the Bible is something we can understand as straightforwardly as we might like. But I think a lot of it is, and a lot of the stuff that gets pegged today as being mystery uh, is not mystery anymore and has been revealed and can be known and understood way more clearly than the average Joe might be led to believe at church that it can be. So I hope I've said something cogent in all of this meandering, and that's going to be it for this episode. Thanks for joining in.